Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all. Welcome to Surrey Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Hosea, chapter 7. Hosea, chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 8 through 16 this evening, and I will read those verses for us. A senseless people. I thought about calling it as dumb as doves, but that's probably not as nice as a senseless people. So uh, we'll begin reading at verse 8. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and they're on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove, without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their hearts when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me. Though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursing of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful again that you remind us of the seriousness of sin. We know that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were senseless to our sinful nature. And so we are thankful that you redeemed us. And as you redeem and as you work in time and space in your people, that you show us our wretchedness, show us our vileness, show us that we cannot keep your law. And you show us Christ who does keep the law, who did keep the law. And there is salvation in him, our savior. And so we're thankful that you make us aware. Thank you that you make your people willing in the day of your power. And that you are the one who brings this great salvation for an undeserving people. And thank you for the encouragement that we are a people with salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we are a people with your word and a people that can walk this world knowing that we are redeemed in Christ Jesus. Yet we confess, even though we know our sinful nature, we confess we still have specific sins that we are blinded to. We still have specific sins as we are still uh, pilgrims in the land and have remaining corruption that we don't always see. And so we pray that you'd forgive us for this. We pray that you'd remind us again of Christ and his finished work. And we are thankful that his blood cleanses us from all our sins. Thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all our sins because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we ask and pray that you'd help us as we come to understand or deal with a difficult text once again this evening. We're thankful for what the prophet Hosea teaches us concerning the seriousness of sin, but also the magnificence of your salvation. And so we ask and pray that we would see that tonight as well as we consider how vile and wretched Israel was. And as we consider what we once were, and as we still deal with our own remaining corruption, help us to see the glories of Christ our Savior. And so we pray that you would strengthen your sheep, rebuke your sheep. We pray that you would save sinners, and we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, when thinking of an animal that is aware of its surroundings, doves, or their close relative pigeons, do not typically come to mind. Although I have read they can actually be quite smart. But when I see them, when I look at them, they seem like they have no clue what's going on. You see, doves are used as a picture of innocence, because they, but they seem so unaware. And certainly they're used tonight as a picture of senselessness when it comes to the people of Israel. And a senseless dove is an apt picture to describe anyone who is not in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't see the danger of perishing without calling upon the name of the Lord. And certainly this is also an apt picture as it's applied to Israel of the people of Israel. You see, they're seeking salvation in Assyria. They're seeking salvation in anything other than their covenant God, other than Yahweh. And they don't realize that they are close to the furnace. They are close to the fire because they have transgressed against God most high. And that's why the prophets come on the scene. Israel has continually committed adultery, committed spiritual adultery against Yahweh, their God. Remember, Yahweh redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, brought them to the promised land, gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, entered into that covenant with them that if they do what is right, they shall receive blessings in the land. If they do what is wrong, they shall receive cursings uh, uh, out of the land, in the land and out of the land. But God is still very long suffering with them. We don't see the full fruition of that until the captivity in 722 when the northern kingdom is taken and the captivity in 586 when Judah and Jerusalem are taken as well. And so the prophets come on the scene. They warn the people. They expose the people's sins. They speak on behalf of Yahweh and they say, repent and return or else these things shall come upon you, which is founded and based upon the covenant that God made with them, which we see fleshed out in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Hosea is one of the first prophets. He's primarily prophesying to the northern kingdom with some southern application. And the main message of the book of Hosea is the marriage, the marriage between Hosea and Gomer. His marriage is the message. It's a picture of what Yahweh will do to an adulterous wife, both in judgment, but also uh, uh, in restoration as well. And so we come to the section that deals with a forgetful people. And there really is a repeated cycles throughout Hosea. There's exposing, warning the people or telling the people what their sins are, warning what will happen if they don't repent. And then there's also the promise of restoring as well, which doesn't come to its full uh, fulfillment until Christ Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. But we're dealing with Israel here. We're dealing with that northern kingdom. And so what do you do with a fair weather people? What do you do with people who are as faithful as a cloud? We saw some of their domestic sins, some of the domestic violence, problems with the priests. The priests are concerned more with about power and are willing to shed blood for that power. We see the kings. The kings are treacherous. The kings are intoxicated. We see the people. They are, uh, they are wicked as well. They commit fraud and all sorts of unsavory things. So there's problems within but also there are issues without as well. And that's what we turn to tonight in verses 8 through 16. Israel's reliance on other nations. Israel's willingness to mix with other nations. They're like the nations in their worship, and they seek, then they seek the nations for help in times of need rather than Yahweh. So the problem is very clear. Not recognizing danger when it is near. Israel is unaware. They are without any sort of sense. 
Unbelievers, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you are unaware as well that everlasting death awaits you unless you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon his name now. And there is some application for the people of God as well. We are redeemed in Christ. We're saved and we can be encouraged by that. We've been made aware of our sinful nature. But let's be honest. There are still some sins that we are blinded to. There are still some sins that we don't always recognize that we are committing. And so we ask God, he would give us a holy awareness of our own problems and where that remedy lies. But for Israel in Hosea 7 verses 8 through 16, Uh, The prophet shows how senseless it is to look for salvation in anything other than God. So senselessness is a key word. Looking for salvation in anything other than God shows that they are a senseless people. So we'll look at this senselessness of the people under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a people without sense, verses 8 through 12. And then secondly, we'll see a people without salvation in verses 13 through 16. So a people without sense verses 8 through 12, then a people without salvation, verses 13 through 16. So let's first look at a people without sense in verses 8 through 12. And again, the context is concerning the fair weather people. The people, remember, they were mixing worship. They were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping the Asherahs. They were doing anything they could because they had a mercenary spirit. They want to get things from God so they might have good things rather than come and worship God according to his ways. And so their sin, uh, we see an apt picture of their sin. It's like this hot oven. It, it, It grows. The heat, the temperature rises. Their sin boils over. And we see it rises to the point where they are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. They kill those who try to bring some sort of sense. They kill those who try to warn them about their sin. They kill those who try to make things right on behalf of Yahweh. Their kings die, all of them have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. None of them calls upon Yahweh. There is no prayer. There is no calling upon the Lord for salvation among the people of Israel. So who do they call upon then? Do they even know how to call upon anything or anyone since they are so senseless? Well, we see in verses 8 through 10 how they are unaware of the enemy within. They are beginning to mix. They have mixed for a long time with the nations that surround them. But we see that in the language in verse 8. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Not to quite the, it's not following the same uh, flow from verse 7, but a similar metaphor, a similar picture. We're using baking imagery once again. Ephraim, the people of Israel, are mixing with the nations around them. They are being poured into that bowl and they are being mixed together. Remember, Israel was supposed to be holy. Israel was supposed to be set apart. Remember in the conquest with what we saw in Joshua and what we're seeing uh, in Judges, Israel was supposed to engage in harem warfare. Harem means devote to destruction. Remember, God was using Israel as an instrument of judgment against the nations of Canaan. And God also was giving them, uh, uh, Israel, the promised land. And lest Uh, Israel be like the other nations, lest they be lured in by the other nations, they were to devote them to destruction. And so they were supposed to do that. They don't do that. 
We see throughout Joshua and in Judges, they rather than devoting them to destruction, it says they put them under tribute. They dwelt among the Canaanites. They were supposed to expel those wretched people from the land, and they did not do that. And then also in Israel, if somebody was to join Israel, that someone had to conform with Israel. Israel was supposed to be distinct. But as Israel's history unfolds, it becomes syncretistic. It becomes blending, the blending of worship. They begin to act like the nations around them. I mean, they did it with the golden calf kind of right away. I mean, we see it in Judges, how they're mixing gods. I mean, they've always done that. They've always seen what the nations are doing, and they mix things together. They should have done what Yahweh had said, worshipped him at the place that he chose, and worshipped him according to the ways that he laid forth in the book of Deuteronomy. McKay says, conforming to the practices of surrounding nations and relying on alliances with them to ensure their security, Israel had deliberately abandoned their distinctive role as the people governed by the Lord, dedicated to his service and in turn upheld and defended by him. They had rendered themselves no different from other peoples. So they're mixing worship with nations and they're going to seek help from other nations. Excuse me as well, which is what they do. So Israel mixes himself with nations, and notice, verse 8, Israel is a cake unturned. Israel is a cake half-baked. Israel is a cake where one side is burnt. And when one side is burnt, Israel becomes absolutely useless. useless. Rather than being properly baked, instead she is burnt and good for nothing. She has no benefit anymore. She is a cake that is unturned. Then in verse 9, we see aliens have devoured his strength. Aliens, that is those who are outside of the people. They are the ones who are consuming the people of Israel from within and from without. And we see the biggest issue throughout these verses, but he does not know it. Israel does not know it. Israel doesn't see what is going on. Israel is unaware, unaware of what is happening. So like a cake unturned, they're being eaten, but they don't realize what is happening. Then we see another metaphor, those with hoary hairs. Yes, gray hairs are here and they're on him, yet he does not know it. And what's an unfortunate thing to recognize, dear brethren, I know there are a lot of people with hoary hairs here and a crown of gray on their head, but a a gray is a sign that we're aging. Gray, scripturally, is a sign that we're dying. Gray is a sign that we're going to pass away. I'm sorry to be so morbid, but that's what it means. And the point is, they don't realize what's happening. They don't realize what is going on. Sometimes people just need to embrace old age. Brethren, I would love to get to the point where I had a gray hair. But unfortunately, in my family, I'm going to go bald before that happens. I am very sensitive about that. I'm mentioning it a lot. I'm just trying to warn you that if one day happens where I come with you know, a shining head, then you know exactly why. But... We need to be aware of those things. I embrace it. I understand my hairs are going. But if you have hoary hairs, embrace it because Israel was not. Gray hairs are here and they're on him, yet he does not know it. They're like someone who goes and looks in the mirror, James 1.24, and goes away and forgets what they look like. Now, I did read this week that pigeons, so one of the reasons they're considered smart is because they actually can uh, recognize themselves uh, in 
the mirror. So if you can't recognize yourself in the mirror, pigeons are smarter than you. But gray hairs are here and they're on him and he does not know it. Again, that repeated refrain, Israel is unaware of what is happening. And he goes on to say in verse 10, he talks about what testifies to the people and it testifies against the people. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Now, we saw this language in 5, verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. The pride of Israel was not Yahweh. It was supposed to be Yahweh, but it was not Yahweh. The pride of Israel was their economics, and certainly under Jeroboam II, which is when Hosea begins to prophesy, there was economic prosperity. Things were going well. Their, 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 their pride is economics, their pride is policy, their pride is their own intellect. Israel's economy and material wealth is a sign now against them that things are not well. It was their pride, but it testifies against them that they have not trusted in Yahweh. The thing that they cherished most becomes a witness against them. The pride of Israel testifies to his face and notice they did not return to the Lord, their God, nor seek him for all this. There's no repentance. He's going to go on and talk about some of the kind things Yahweh has done. And even throughout this book, there are promises return to me. I am a kind God. I am a gracious God. Now we know that fulfillment comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, but those assurances are there. That if they turn to the Lord, if they return to him, he is gracious. 5.15, which I do think is looking ahead, but I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. Verse 1 of chapter 6, come, let us return to the Lord. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is saving. But the people still will not seek him. They won't know him in a deeper way. They won't know him according to his ways. Israel is a very clear picture of the depravity of man. How man can do nothing. How man worships himself. Man worships the creature rather than the creator. And Israel would not return to him. They would not turn to him. They did not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. So they are a people who are unaware of the enemy within, and they don't find help from Yahweh himself. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see how they're unaware of Yahweh's sovereignty. This is where the dumbest doves things comes from. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. And perhaps the image here is a dove who flaps their wings frantically. That's how doves typically kind of move, right? And they don't, not very quick, and they all kind of move kind of funny, like they don't know what's going on. And I remember traveling years ago and seeing those spikes on the, you know, the, the ledges. And I always wondered what that was for. And then I realized I saw a couple doves, you know, hanging in there. They don't realize as they're flapping down that there are spikes right there. They're flapping right towards their death or pigeons, I guess I should say. Pigeons, doves, I'm going to uh, intermix them throughout this sermon probably. But the people are as silly as a dove. They have no sense. They have no awareness. They don't know danger when it lurks. They can't see the spikes, even though they're flying right towards that very thing. And the senselessness is manifested where Israel seeks their salvation. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They try one superpower. That doesn't seem to work because Egypt probably has its own troubles at this time. So they go to Assyria instead. 
They go, Menahem, one of the kings in 2 Kings 15. There's like a cycle of assassinations that happen after Jeroboam II. There's political instability uh, at this time. And Menahem, one of those kings, uh, there's a, he and, um, brings in a heavy tax upon Israel to pay for Assyria. And certainly in the southern kingdom, Ahaz seeks help from whom? Assyria. They don't go to Yahweh. They don't trust in God. They go to princes and princes of other nations instead. So they try Egypt. That doesn't work. So then they go to Assyria. But what they don't recognize is wherever they go, Yahweh still knows. Yahweh is still sovereign. Yahweh still has spoken based upon what he said in the book of Deuteronomy. And if they do not trust and they do not keep, uh, uh, recognize that he will keep his word and they do not follow him, he will bring curses upon them. So he says in verse 12, wherever they go, I will spread my debt on them. He's going to catch those birds. He's going to catch those doves. I like to think doves are pretty easy to quick uh, catch because they're not very quick. Uh, but Yahweh is going to catch Israel. I will bring them down like the birds of the air. We saw similar language in chapter 5. Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment. Judgment is coming. Because you've been a snare to Mizpah, a net spread on Tabor. They have caught They have enticed people to idolatry. Now Yahweh is going to catch them and bring them down. I will bring them down like the birds of the air. Now Israel can never say you didn't warn us. Israel can never say you never explained. I mean, God laid it out in detail in Deuteronomy. Here is how you honor me. Here is how you live in the land. And then the prophets come along and say, Here's how you live in the land based upon what is said. Israel can never say that they were never warned. Someone who is not in Christ can never say they have never been warned. If they never hear the gospel, which would be unfortunate, their hearts bear witness against them. For as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, that our hearts are a witness against us, there's the sense of the divine, but... Man worships the creature rather than the creator. Man has no excuse before God most high. And Israel does not. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. How many times did they hear the law? How many times was it read? They had the book, but they just chose to forget what was said. Gill says, what was written in the law and in the prophets were read and explained in the congregations of Israel on their stated days when they met together on uh, for religious worship, in which it was threatened that if they did not observe the laws and statutes of the Lord their God, but neglected and broke them, they should be severely chastised and corrected with his sword judgments, famine, pestilence, the sword of the enemy, and captivity. And now the Lord would fulfill his word agreeably to what had often been heard by them, but not regarded. God spoke, they didn't listen. God commanded, they disobeyed. God said, I would judge, but they did not take it to heart. They heard it in their gatherings. Now, all this is meant to show us how senseless man is. That's a recurring theme throughout this book, isn't it? Man lacks self-awareness, and especially as it comes to sin. We saw in chapter 7, Yahweh would uncover, Yahweh would have healed, Yahweh would have returned, but their iniquity is uncovered, their wickedness is seen. That's why people need to be told they're sinful, right? 
People don't, people dead in their trespasses and sins don't think that they're sinful. They don't, they don't realize they have a sinful nature. They need to be told that very thing. That's why we preach the law. Because one of the purposes of the law, according to scripture, is it's how we know what sin is. Romans 3.20, and as was read tonight in Romans chapter 7, how would I know what committing adultery was if it wasn't for the law? That's why we preach the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments for those who are redeemed is a pattern for living, but is also a pedagogue. It is a tutor for those uh, that to show people their sinfulness. Here's what you must keep. Here is God's standard, and you can't do it. I mean, that's why, you know, in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian has that burden on his back, right? He can't keep it. He can't do anything. But where does he go? He goes to the cross of Christ. For Christ is the only one who could keep the law. We have to preach the bad news. You're sinful. You're a wretch. You can't keep the law. Then we preach the good news. There is Christ who kept the law. Christ, the law, Christ who is perfect. Christ in whom there is salvation. But man is unaware in his, in his trespasses and sins. There's no sense of God's majesty. There is no sense of man's sin. Man is like that senseless dove. Now, again, even for the people of God, as I said at the outset with the problem, we do have remaining corruption. And sometimes the church as a whole can look like the world. I'm going to hit that a little bit more when we get to verse 14. But just for the people of God in general, brethren, you and I have sins we're blind to. Let's just be honest about that. There's sins we don't realize that we commit, sins we don't realize that we, you know, uh, um, uh, things that we don't realize we fall short in. We have our own blind spots. That's why the word is important, isn't it? That's why gathering is important, so that we don't forget the promises of God, don't forget the word of God. And if we need a bit of a rebuke on a Sunday, the Lord is pleased to rebuke us, to help us so we don't actually, uh, well, we can stop doing that sin throughout the next week. We all must be aware. We all must recognize that we have our problems, we have our issues, we have our struggles, we have our, tr- we must be a people who are self-aware. We must be a people who are wise, who know how to take the law of God and apply it in real life situations. We must be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The wise path is the right path. The wise path is according to God's ways. And if you're in Christ, we do it in the power of Christ and the power of the spirit. But we must ask him to uh, be aware of those things we're not aware of that we should be. So may we not be a senseless people, but may we be a people filled with sense, because those who are not in Christ, unfortunately, are a senseless people. So that's a people without sense. Let's then look at a people without salvation. Verses 13 through 16. A people without salvation. The people in verses 13 to 14 B are unaware of who to call upon. Now, God calls judgment upon them, judgment for their transgression. But notice, woe to them, for they have fled from me. They have gone other ways. Woe to them. I'm going to bring judgment upon them. But uh, the beautiful thing about Christ coming and dying is the God that we uh, should receive judgment from is the God we find refuge in. It's the God who has taken away our judgment. God who poured out his judgment on Christ instead of us. And instead of the people fleeing to Yahweh, they go to other places. Woe to them. Why would you go to Assyria? Why would you go to Egypt? Why would you go to whatever sort of idol you might flee to? Why won't we go to God? Why won't they go to God? Woe to them for such a thing. 
And certainly there's destruction to them. Verse 13, they have transgressed against me. They have violated the covenant. God had entered into covenant with them. They violated that very covenant, though Yahweh was good to them. And even notice, though I redeem them, yet they have spoken lies against me. Yahweh does all these good things, and yet Israel speaks lies against him. Again, another apt picture to describe Adam. I mean, again, we saw how in chapter 6, verse 7, there's an allusion back to Adam, just like Adam transgressed the covenant. So too does Israel transgress the covenant. Again, God made Adam, and he made Adam and could have said, just honor me. But he says here, enjoy all these things. Here, be my vice regent. Here, be my priest who to till this lovely garden. And what does Adam do? He eats from the one tree he's not supposed to. It's not just that we sinned against a holy God. It's that we trampled on the goodness of God. And that's exactly what Israel does here. God was good to hit them. God redeemed them. God gave them a land. God is long suffering with them. Yet time after time, they speak lies against him. Though I redeemed them, probably referring back to the Exodus. God brought them up out of the land of Egypt, but... The people have spoken lies against God. God can't do this. God can't do that. We'll talk about the cursing when we get to verse 16. But they curse God and they speak lies against God, though Yahweh is good. They go other places. And notice in verse 14, their blindness to Yahweh's aid further. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. Notice the implication. There is crying. There is sorrow. There is sadness, there is pain still, but where do they not go? They're still dealing with all of it. They're still dealing with the fall of uh, the, the effects of the fall. They're still dealing with sin and misery and the effects of sin. They're still crying out. And yet notice when they wail upon their beds, they do not cry out to Yahweh. Wailing upon their beds, usually at night. It's the place sometimes, if you're like me, where our minds begin to wander and start thinking about the day. Start thinking about things that I said in the sermon. Start thinking about my interactions with people. Start thinking about certain things. And before long, it's like midnight. That happens quite a bit. Because our minds begin to go. I mean, they say scientifically, you know, we get off our phones at nine and try and do something that chills you out so you fall asleep. But let's be honest. Sometimes we put our head on the pillow, we haven't thought all day, and then everything starts running through your head. And you start thinking. It's the place where we cry out sometimes. It's the place where we pray uh, sometimes more than any other place. And so for these ones, they're still wailing on their beds. They still have their issues, but they do not cry out to Yahweh. Now, thankfully, that is not so for the people of God. For David talks about sleep a lot in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. He talks about in Psalm 3, he cries out to the Lord who is in his holy hill. David lays down, he sleeps, he awakes, the Lord sustains him. But we especially see in verse 4 of, of Psalm 4, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart uh, on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There's issues, there's struggles. When, there's a, when someone is a hothead, the best thing to do is be angry, don't sin, go and bring it to the Lord. Because we all have issues, we all have sorrows, we all have all things that really make us angry, and we need to take it to our Lord. That's what the people of God do. And we see very clearly here in Hosea chapter 7 
that that is where Israel does not go. And brethren, that's meant to be a comfort. God sustains us in our sleep. He who now neither sleeps or slumbers is the God who watches over us when we sleep and the God we can call upon on our beds. But Israel does not do that. And so they're unaware of where to turn. And they think grain and new wine might help. Maybe perhaps could refer to some sort of festival or could just refer to it's what they need in a time of great need. They assembled together for grain and new wine. Notice a people who gather for grain. They're mercenaries, aren't they? That mercenary spirit. The language of gathering carries the idea of assembling together like the people of Israel were to assemble for their stated meetings. And there is some good application in Hosea to the church of Christ. And we have to be watchful. We have to be on guard. We have to recognize our own blind spots as a church. However, we must recognize that a lot of modern church practice is a mixture with the world, isn't it? I mean, the focus is not on let's honor Christ, but how do we bring people in? Brother, we're not about, we're not against evangelism, but the most important thing, which we've talked about a lot, is worship. Who does God seek? John 4, 23. Those who will worship me. Evangelism is going to cease one day. Discipleship will cease one day. Worship will not. That's why worship is the main thing. That's why worship is so important. And worshiping according to what God has said. And the important thing to recognize is people have had a mindset, and sometimes we can still have this mindset, that the church is about us. It's about God. It's about honoring him. And thankfully, if we do what he says, he is pleased to speak to us and nourish us and give us the strength we need throughout the rest of the week. It's about church worshiping God and stirring up one another to love and good works. That's exactly what is said in Hebrews chapter 10. How do we love one another? How do we stir up one another to love and good works? By not forsaking the assembling of yourselves, even as you see the day approaching. Again, once again, we see the mercenary spirit of the people of Israel. And there can be an application to the mercenary spirit, sometimes of modern churches. Now, we got our issues, we have our problems, and we have our sins. But I do believe that we worship God according to what he said in his word. We pray the word, we preach the word, we sing the word, we partake of the word, we worship him acceptably, Hebrews chapter 12. That's a New Testament text, right? We worship him acceptably because he is a consuming fire. That's why worship is so vital. That's why it's important for us to gather. I must confess, uh, I haven't done a segment of what really bothers me, but I'm going to do one right now. I can't stand the comment. It's not just about sitting in church and hearing a sermon. That drives me nuts, dear brethren. It's not just about Sunday. I I get what people are saying with that. I I understand there are six other days of the week. But brethren, the most important thing is gathering on a Sunday and hearing God speak to us. For how can you function throughout the rest of the week if you haven't heard God speak to you and be edified by what he has said? I hope we don't have a mercenary spirit. I hope we understand that. I'm probably preaching to the choir here. It is just a blessing. How do we serve God? Show up, dear brethren. Show up and worship God. If someone's in need, help them. Do your job. Love your family. That is how we serve 
God. Sometimes even too as a pastor, I know what people can't be here because they're sick or whatever, providentially hindered, but there are sometimes it is discouraging. I'll just be honest as a pastor. You might have something you thought about for someone, you're like, this person's in need, and, and then they're just not there, and it's not even a good reason for them to be there. The, one of the best things to help and encourage a pastor is just be there. Just be there, just show up, and it is for your good, and it's meant to be uh, uh, the main thing is to honor and glorify God. So we don't want to mix it. We don't want to try to win the world with the world. That's what shredding guitars do. That's what puppets, ponies, and programs do. That's what guys, you know, riding in on quads do or swinging down like Spider-Man uh, from the you know, balcony. That's what they try to do. That's, that is irreverent. That is terrible. We come to worship our one true and living God. And if our worship looks like the world, how will we ever understand or see the sacred? How will we recognize what is sacred and what is not? And in reality, I do think what we do is countercultural, by the way. You mean you don't have a band? No. You mean you don't have a thousand puppets pointing? No. Because here's what God said, and here's what we do according to his word. In Israel, they assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebelled against me. Notice, though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, God has been good to them. They're like that incorrigible son. God was good to them. God disciplined them. God chastised them. But they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. Though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they still devised evil against me. They returned, but not to me. They returned to Baal, but not to the Most High God, who is sovereign over all things. Instead, they are like a treacherous bow, a bow that does not work, a bow that is incapable of operating properly. They've gone after their lovers, uh, namely Baal, rather than loving their husband, who is Yahweh. They return, but not to the Most High. God is good. God is gracious. God is kind. God disciplines. And yet they still do not return to him. They still go looking for help from others. And so notice what will happen. Their princes shall fall by the sword. They shall have violent deaths. And for the cursing, and notice the reason for the cursings of their tongue. What they're going to do is, what he's saying here is, they're going to curse God. God is gracious. God is good. God chastised. God fulfills his word by judging them. Yet instead of repenting, what do they do? They curse God. What a sign of a hardened heart, isn't that? When someone who has gone through trials and situate difficulties, you'd like to think God is how that's one way God draws people in is through those trials. And yet they just persist in their sin. That is a sad thing. They still rail against God until the day that they die. And Israel is going to rail against God. They're going to curse God with their tongue. They did not return to him. And instead of finding their aid in him, they're going to curse him instead when he said, I will help you. And yet they're still going to blame him for all their issues. What a sign of a hardened heart. And notice at the end of verse 16, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, a couple things this could mean. Egypt knows what Assyria is like. You go after Assyria, you know what's going to happen. Or... Perhaps there's retribution. Those who mock God will be mocked. And that's exactly perhaps what is in, could also be in view here. But one thing is very clear. It is a reversal of the Exodus, isn't it? 
They were saved up out of the land of Egypt, and now the people are going to return to Egypt. And as they return to Egypt, they're going to be chided. They're going to be mocked. They shall, they, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. They won't find the safe haven that they thought. Instead, they're returning to captivity. God saved, but God is going to send them back to that captivity. And so they really are a people without salvation. And that's a serious problem, isn't it? A man who is in sin, who is still in his trespasses and sins, if you're not in Christ today, you are a person who does not have salvation. There's only one way to find that salvation, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, one of the saddest things perhaps we can recognize is people who go through it, and yet they still rail against God most high. Or people who might say, I'm not a perfect person, but they're not recognizing their sin, and they might say, could God really forgive Brethren, God really does forgive, doesn't he? And to say he doesn't is a sign of unbelief. And a people without salvation are a people under the judgment of God. Again, if you're not in Christ, you are under the judgment of God and danger does lurk. You are like that senseless dove that is flapping its wings right before those, right towards those spikes. And until Christ comes back or until you die, there is still the time to believe on Jesus. Believe upon him. Look to him because God is a good God who saves senseless people. If you confess your sins, if you confess in your, if you believe in your hearts and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. Believe upon him and there is mercy and forgiveness. Now, one of the things that Hosea does, he gives us some extreme pictures. He uses extreme language to describe how serious sin is. That's a lovely juxtaposition with how magnificent God's grace is, isn't it? Here's this adulterous wife, and yet one day they who are not my people shall be my people. There shall be restoration for this adulterous witch. There shall be salvation for her. And even here is now, even though we use the language of a people without salvation, the wonderful thing is God redeems his people. And he gives his people salvation. He gives those who are part of that new covenant, those whom he died for, he gives them the blessedness of salvation. Peter's in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 19, uses the language of redemption, how, we, how the people of God have been purchased. It is because of Christ. Why are we saved? It is because of Christ, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, Received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without uh, spot, uh, without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God is a great savior for undeserving, senseless people. He shows people their sin. He gives them a sense of it and shows them their need for Christ. And it's because God is good and he saves a senseless people in the Lord Jesus. And one of the things uh, that is prophesied concerning the new covenant era is like a reversal of this dove type language. We see in Hosea 11 verses 9 through 11, that's in the prophecy concerning the one who will out of Egypt, I call my son. And we know that is applied to Jesus just after his birth. 
So in verse 9 of Hosea 11, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars, and his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Ones as senseless as doves are and will be as innocent as doves because of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. That is the promise that we see and receive based upon Hosea 11, serious warning, but serious encouragement that comes from knowing Christ died for his people and saved us from our sins. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful again that you teach us how senseless man is. And we know that you have been long-suffering. We know that uh, you have not brought in that final judgment just yet. And as you tarry, it does lead to the salvation of your elect. And we thank you for this. We are thankful that your people are a great multitude that no man can number. And you are bringing all of them in, for which we give you glory and praise and honor. We are thankful for that salvation. We are thankful for the picture of it. Thank you that the the pictures of sin, the seriousness of sin also shows forth uh, with that opposite, with that salvation that comes in Jesus, that we are a people who do have salvation. We are a people who were given that sense of our sin and given a sense of our need for Christ and have fled to Christ and have fled the judgment to come in him. Thank you for the redemption that we have. Thank you for your mercy and kindness and grace. Thank you for your long suffering. With us, we are undeserving of this. Yet you are God. You are the God who is love, and the God who sent forth your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We confess we do not fully fathom this. We don't fully understand this. We don't fully uh, comprehend all of these things. But we do ask and pray that we would believe it and confess it. And as we believe it and confess it, we ask and pray that you'd help us to be a people that worships you aright that loves you according to what your word says, that we would be aware of our own sins, be aware of our own faults and issues, and seek by your grace to uh, work on them. And we do long for that time where there is no more sin. We do long for that time where we will not be able to sin. And we again thank you that you tarry for the salvation of your people, but we do long for Christ to come back. We are tired, we are weary. Uh, and we struggle with many sins, and yet we are thankful that all of them are forgiven in Christ, and we are thankful for the hope that we have. So we pray that you encourage us as we go into the world, as we go out as uh, citizens, as exiles in the land. We pray that you'd give us the strength that we need as we wander throughout the week, and that you'd give us joy as we come and return home next week. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.